Labyrinths is brought to you by Knox Robinson Productions. Please consider becoming a patron. For as little as $5 a month, you can listen to Labyrinths ad-free. Visit patreon.com slash Knox Robinson to learn more. As a kid, I had always thought of fame as this velvet rope in front of a door that goes into a room where in that room you join all the other famous people or whatever. You, your troubles are over and <laughs> you're, you're in the club, you know? And when we got signed, I had this very disturbing version of that vision, which was that when I opened that door, there was another door. And I knew that behind that door was another door. And behind that door was another door. Behind oh, that, that damn. Door. All of a sudden, the challenge was, are you going to be the kind of person that can prove yourself over and over and swim in those waters and live with that pressure? And I knew right away, no, I don't want it. Feeling lost? Then you're in the right place. I'm Amanda Knox. And I'm Christopher Robinson. And this is Labyrinths. Our guest today is Chris Ballou. If that name doesn't ring a bell, maybe this will. I'm moving to the country, I'm gonna eat a lot of peaches. I'm moving to the country, I'm gonna eat a lot of peaches. Peaches come from a can. I am the lead singer and songwriter for a professional rock and roll band from Seattle, Washington, called the Presidents of the United States of America. I also make music for little kids, ages zero to six or so, and their parents as Casper Baby Pants. In our social world of new parents with young children, it was this that drew the most excitement. It's hard to find music geared towards kids that is also pleasant for adults, and Casper Baby Pants nails that niche. One white duck went wandering out Looking for someone to love him In the blink of an eye From up in the sky Another white duck did join him One white duck plus one white duck equals two white But aside from his alter ego as Casper Baby Pants, Chris has been putting out solo albums in the last few years. I am currently making fuzzy, psychedelic, meditative, abstract music for grown-ups to either dance or fall asleep to. Chris's new album, Primitive God, has been on loop in our house for the last month. As much as we enjoy Chris's kid music, Eureka seems to like the psychedelic fuzz of the adult tunes. Yeah, we've been we've been jamming on all your new solo stuff. Cool. Um, and Eureka is just figuring out how to move her body and dance. Oh, nice. So these are some of the first songs that she's ever danced to. Wow. Wiggled. Wiggled is the more accurate term. But yes, <laughs> it's very exciting to see her purposefully, intentionally move her body because right. music is happening to her. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Not just being a squirmy worm. Exactly. Yeah. Chris is a pretty happy, well-adjusted guy these days. It hasn't always been that way, though. Getting here required a journey of self-discovery that took many years. So let's start at the beginning. First, the earth was a molten ball of lava, you know. Yes, And then yeah. it cooled, and then... <laughs> and, and then there were babies. <laughs> yeah, were the first life... Were, was that baby life, or was it just... Could you call the first single I think this organism? is a chicken and an egg. Yeah, okay, yeah, right, probably right. baby life. 
But as I uh, dig around in my consciousness and get into a healthy relationship with my ego selves, I went back to the idea that a baby is enlightened. They are experiencing the world as a sensory experience, an energetic experience, and they see it all or they feel it all. You know, it's not about seeing as much as feeling. And that's why as organisms, we're so impressionable when we're small to the tension in the air or any sort of ripple in that fabric of reality is absorbed, not through words, but just through energy. And there was tension in my house growing up. It was verbal tension between my parents. I could hear my mom crying when she did the laundry at night and I was little. And I, th I think what happened was I felt responsible or something. I felt like I needed to fix it mm. or I would end up, you know, naked on the sidewalk. <laughs> I mean, that's how it is in a little kid's mind. You think if things aren't working here in the household. What else is there? Yeah, what else is there? There's nothing else. So my core relationship with music was pleasing my mom and trying to fix that scenario through practicing my piano and playing little songs. And my mom would light up. When you're a little child, you poke around and try things and you wait for that light from your caregiver to tell you you're on the right track. Like you are becoming somebody if you are reflected in an adult who is responding positively. And then, you're, then that circuit is made, right, in your body. Right. So the core original relationship I had with music was to try to save my mom. And that stayed with me my whole career. I always thought, how can this music be in service to others? It's way less about, like, look at me, you know, promoting my personality. Mm. I've had plenty of projects over the years where I've hidden myself, not put myself in the credits or anything. So with that as a foundational way of relating to music, I was happy, really, as a teenager and college student and post-college guy to make music in a way that was successful, or I could call it successful, that was very attainable. I would record on my four-track, make a little mixtape, go play on the street or in the subway, sell the little mixtape, and I was like, I'm successful! You know, like, that really genuinely felt like a closed circuit. And I was not taking over the world, but I was reaching a few people, and that was enough. Did you have some other job at this point where it was music oh, yeah. paying any no. percent of your bills? No, it was beer money. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> that was the other thing. I always felt like I didn't want music to pay the bills because I didn't want to think about that as I was being creative. I purposely didn't go to music school. I went to art school and just screwed around in art school for four years and had a great time. I actually was on the honor roll. I didn't know it until I was graduating and the dean of students was calling out the names and there I was. I was like, how did I get a 3.75 grade <laughs> average? I don't know how that happened. Art school, man. <laughs> I know. It was amazing. It was amazing. So I had a band the presidents of the United States of America. And it was just another in a long series of bands that I'd had, you know, with some of the same people and some different people in, uh, in New York and Boston and Seattle. It was just something that was always shifting, like, oh, I'm in Boston now. I'll start playing with these guys. And now I'm in Seattle. I'll start playing with these guys. And it was just something to do to keep our lives interesting, like on a Tuesday night. Oh, we have a gig. Yay. Let's go do that. And we had a really hard, fast rule that it had to be pleasurable for all 
the band members involved, we all had to look at the set list and look at any one of the song names and feel good, feel engaged. And if one person said, you know, that song, I'm not feeling it, we just got rid of it. We kind of had to trust that something better would fill the space that that song made. It's kind of like you can't find the job or the partner you want until you get away from the job or partner you have if it's not working. Yeah, yeah, no, that's fair. Yeah, and I felt totally successful. We were happy and challenged to make a great set of music. And then all of a sudden, all these people started coming to the shows. And our drummer, Jason, was a booking agent at Mo, And he just said, I'm going to try to book us three times a week and just see what happens. Mm -hmm. And for about two months, we just played a crazy amount of shows and all these people came. And that felt great because that's a like a loving relationship with this big group of people. And in that context, for me, songwriting was always about being in service. And in that context, the service was to elevate the room, to like heighten the energy and make everyone feel good and involved and happy. So at at what point in this do you become roommates with Beck? Oh, <laughs> yeah, that was fun. So the presidents had started in late December 93. Early months of 94 is when we're playing like as much as we possibly can. And then I got a call from somebody I used to busk with in Boston who said, hey, I got a publishing deal and one of the other uh, artists that has a deal with this publisher is this guy Beck. And he's putting together a, a live band and I thought of you, that you, Chris, would be great in Beck's live band. But it was like, it's as if somebody called you one day and said, hey, uh, Elmer the Octopus is going to be huge and you, sure. you got to be in his band. And I was kind of like, I, I got a band, you know, like, <laughs> <laughs> I don't need another band. So I ignored it and didn't follow up or anything. She called like three months later, like, no, you seriously have to be in this guy's band. He's going to be amazing. And so uh, she said that they were coming to Seattle to do a couple shows and that I could meet him and just watch him play and then see what it's all about. So I went down to the Crocodile Cafe and I met him and he went up and played his set. It was just him and an acoustic guitar and movies went off in my head. I, I hallucinated his lyrics. It was... <laughs> No drugs involved, just Amazing. absolute kaleidoscopic cultural collage that was his lyrics. I loved. And that's what we bonded over after the show. And um, then I went to see him the next night at the OK Hotel, and the backing track for Loser broke. And it kind of broke, I think, mid-song or something. Oh. And he floundered, or at least I thought he was kind of floundering up there. And I just felt this impulse. I jumped up on stage and uh, grabbed one of his little keyboards and started playing a groove. And, and then he started joining on guitar. And then pretty soon, like he had a suitcase full of harmonicas. And I started putting a harmonica in my mouth and he put one in his mouth. I put another one in my mouth. He put another one in his mouth. Wait, like sausages? What are we talking about? <laughs> harmonicas. <laughs> I know. But oh, that, like sausages. Like yeah, yeah. How? I don't know how. <laughs> we were crazed. <laughs> And we ended up wrestling around on the floor, having a harmonica duel. And it just was a absolute moment of freedom. And I think we bonded in that moment, like we could do anything in front of each other. And so then he invited me to Olympia to play slide guitar on a record he was making with Calvin Johnson called One Foot in the Grave. I did not know how to play slide guitar. It was one of those things where you, you get the job by saying, yes, I can sure. do that. Sure. No problem. And then I was secretly like, oh, what have I done? I, and I went to the trading musician. I bought a guitar. I bought a slide. I didn't even own a slide. 
And I literally went to like the bus station with the guitar from the store, got on the bus, went to Olympia, got off the bus, walked to Calvin's house, walked into the basement, and they said, play slide on this song. And I'd never heard it. (laughs) So I just hunted and pecked and felt my way around. He didn't want a proficient slide guitar player. He wanted somebody who was kind of reaching and messing around, but also melodic, you know, and, and hooky. So anyway, I fit the bill. I got a call from him a few days later saying, uh, would you like to go on tour? And that really was also when my life as a professional or like success started. But it wasn't my success. Mm. It was somebody else's and I was going to be a supporter for somebody else. And it ended up being a beautiful thing because I went to L.A. I was the only band member not from L.A. So he let me live with him, which was very gracious. And we drove all over L.A. talking about his transformation from bedroom four tracker to signing a deal. And he stopped smoking pot. He stopped drinking. He bought Howard Zinn's People's History of the United States and he read it in the back of the tour van. He was very conscious of taking advantage of the opportunity he'd been given. I think when he saw the door open in that velvet rope room and saw the other doors, he went, let me at him. Hmm. You know? Did that give you any confidence when you reached the door? No. No. Okay. No. <laughs> <laughs> Did you like the vision of being a support person to someone else going through those doors? Could that have been a life for you hmm. of like being in Beck's band? for decades? Absolutely. It could have been. I mean, the presidents were, we'd only done a handful of shows. We made a little demo tape and, but we hadn't done anything big. The thing was Beck did not like the song Loser. Hmm. He tossed that off before they went to lunch and he always thought it was kind of silly. And then it got all this attention, like King of the Slackers and all that, those headlines that didn't fit him. So we talked a lot about that uh, incongruity with his intentions and how he was perceived, that he was this happy-go-lucky, surreal, little throwaway plastic slacker, right? Mm. And so that's where I really took note, like, ah, any of our songs could be hits, so we have to be careful. Ah. We have to love them, you know? And we already had this very aggressive, democratic approach to loving our songs. Did you expect or have any idea which of the songs you were writing back then Mm. would blow up? Did you know Peaches was the song? No, I didn't. In fact, I remember when we used to play Lump before we had the world's eyes on us, it was sort of a a low spot in the set. People were kind of like, all right, what's that? That's the weird little, like, short, weird, kind of aggressive rock song. She's Lump, she's Lump, she's in my head. Okay, whatever. What else you got? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Go back to playing bull weevil, little funky, you know, bass lines. So, yeah, I had no idea. I do have a very distinct memory of getting into Dave Dieterer's, the guitar player's car after visiting his dad and looking at him over the roof of the car. And he said, you know, if uh, some major label wanted to come along and pay us a whole bunch of money to sing these songs all over the world, I'd do it. In my mind, I thought... You're crazy. Nobody's going to... What gonna... record label would want these no, ridiculous just, that's songs That's not the point. Yeah. We're just doing this for fun. But I said, yeah, me too. <laughs> but it was a funny little moment. That sensation reaffirmed that it was just for us, for today, for now. But I think because we had that perspective and because we had that love for it, we wanted to appear not to care at all while also caring deeply. Like, we really worked hard at the craft of making fun music The president's love for their music came through in their shows, and eventually it paid off. We did one show, and there were seven major labels in the audience, seven reps from labels. And I didn't know 
which is so great. <laughs> I always think that if I knew, I wouldn't be sitting here because I would have screwed it up or something. But we just did our usual slap happy, crazy show. And then literally the next day, we had seven major label offers or interests that we had to respond to. And very quickly, we went from hanging out with our friends in the afternoon, smoking a joint, playing frisbee, barbecue in the evening, go play a show at the little club, to, all right, we got to strap on our big boy pants. We got to figure out what our publishing company names are and pick a major label and hire a lawyer and hire a manager and become grownups. And it was incredibly flattering. You know, there was this moment where I was like, wow, I guess we're really good. <laughs> But it was also disorienting. I had to um, sort of justify the two sensations. The one sensation was elated, validated, happy. The other was terrified and scared. And this is the wrong path. Hmm. And the dark side of being a fixer or a people pleaser is that I don't negotiate with my own self properly. And I remember having the impulse, if not trying to talk to the band, about breaking up right as we got signed, like the Sex Pistols. Let's just freeze the band and then move on and do something else, you know? Yeah. And it'll still sell lots of records and they can make videos and stuff, but we're just going to break up. Of course, that didn't fly. And I don't think I was stubborn about it. Maybe I said it even in joking, you know, but I really felt like maybe that's a good idea. There's an Italian phrase Amanda always says to me, which I'm going to get wrong here. She can correct me. Mm. Scherzando, scherzando... Che dice la verità? Si dice la verità. Just jokingly, jokingly, um, you tell the truth. You tell the truth. And whenever you make a little, oh, maybe we should break up, haha, just, you know, it's like, there's something there. Yeah. Right? Yeah. There's yeah. something there. But it didn't register in a meaningful way. So we did it. And, you know, when you're riding a pony that's pooping gold bricks, it's hard to get off the pony. Hey, listeners, thanks for tuning in. This podcast is only possible thanks to listener support. So please consider becoming a patron. Visit patreon.com slash Knox Robinson. Is there any part of this period where you did feel like, this is awesome, I do want to do this, this is a great life? Oh, absolutely. Every time we were on a stage in front mm. of an audience. You had that moment before you had any of the yeah. other trappings of success yeah. or fame, though. Yeah, we did. We did. But I guess there's a level of intensity that was introduced to that environment. Once you have a giant auditorium. Once we're on MTV. And it was a time when people watched MTV to see how you should behave at a show. So mm. there's stage diving and the crowd would come and perform their 90s crowd thing. Uh-huh. <laughs> you know? I was in some of those crowds. Because we had songs like Dune Buggy, which was a real funky little tiny song about a spider driving a car. Mm. And they would still be crowd surfing <laughs> during that song. And it always made me think like, wow, I think we could just be up here like reading Gone with the Wind like Andy Kaufman and they might still stage dive <laughs> and crowd surf. <laughs> 
But really, it was the live thing. It was so thrilling to connect with all those people in the same room uh, that that kept the flame alive. If I were you, the time I would know that I really made it is when Weird Al called. What? Right? (laughs) Yeah. I mean, if Weird Al wanted to do a parody of your podcast, that would be incredible. Oh, my God. (laughs) Actually. That's a whole new medium. Yeah. It is. Come on. Podcast parodies, <laughs> right? yeah. Right? Yeah. yeah. So, yes, Weird Al. Oh, my goodness. That was a huge one. We uh, got the word that Al wanted to cover Lump. We were all for it. It was fantastic. I couldn't believe that having seen him on TV in the 80s the way I did on MTV that he was playing me. You know, like, he's me. <laughs> what? Weird Al is me? And so we just hit it off, really became good buddies. And he's produced a video for us. He's played live with us countless times. Yeah, so that was fantastic. He showed me the video for Gump. That was the only time he ever debuted a video for the artist that he was covering. The funny thing about Weird Al covering the presidents of the United States of America is that they were already kind of mocking the self-serious grunge and alt-rock then dominating the radio. Their songs far more whimsical than the likes of Pearl Jam or Rage Against the Machine. You know, I think when we started out, We were like a a dear little band that was trying to rock, you know? We're like these three dorks. And I think people were like, look at the little dorks. Look look at them trying. They're trying. So cute. I want to put them in my pocket, the little dorks. It was kind of mock rock in a way. And then when we got to a certain level of success, we actually stood up in front of 50,000 people at a racetrack in Germany at a festival and had to entertain that kind of crowd. That's where the sort of dissatisfaction with the live thing started creeping in because it just wasn't as fun. It was more like crank up the machine. You know, there's no room for improv or some sort of rapport. You know, they're so far away, like big press pit and all that stuff and cameras. And so that started to sour that experience a little bit. So when does this world of being a successful rock band, when does it turn for you? You know, it was a slow turn, but I think the one of the things that really wrecked it was doing press. Because if we had something to promote or, you know, when we got nominated for a Grammy a couple times, we would get our publicist setting us up with four interviews an hour for 15 minutes each for like four hours. And same questions, same, it's like a nightmarish loop that we got stuck in. And I think that's where I really started to sympathize with Beck. He was being painted as an individual that he was not. And that's where I started to really hear the evidence that I was misunderstood. Just based on the questions? I don't know. Maybe it was just the repetition of it all made me feel like I was putting on an act or something. Who did they think that you were? I couldn't have a meaningful conversation with these people. It was just me being what I thought they wanted me to be, you know? Yeah, no, I, I totally get that. That's why one of the things that I really appreciate when I talk to people is, first of all, if, if they've done their homework to know what I have been asked a million times, mm. because I get it, they're in a situation where they are having to 
put together an article for their magazine that is going to answer these basic questions. Yeah. And they don't have a million years to like go and get a beer with you and really talk about what you feel. Yeah. But you do feel like you're on this hamster wheel and you have to perform yourself to someone. Exactly. And then as soon as you're performing yourself, you stop feeling like yourself anymore. You have this weird disassociation happening. You're almost watching yourself do it. Yeah. Yeah. And Paul McCartney talks about that. He talks about how there's Paul McCartney, the human, and he puts on Paul McCartney, the beetle. And I didn't want to do that. I really have always had an impulse that was abstracted at first, but then I focused later and gave shape to, which was to make music that fully represented me completely transparently. But the first step in that process is then you have to know who you are. And that's been a lifelong struggle. And so that friction between what everybody thinks you are and what you really are can really screw up your mind and make you believe things that aren't true. You know, when you were being interrogated and they were saying something, they were asking you to make something up, basically, and you started to see it. That's the same thing that we all do. We all have a judge and jury and we all interrogate ourselves. It's as simple as like, what's the future going to be like? Mm -hmm. And you spend all this time imagining a future, right? Or scripting what it's going to be like, which becomes real because you could imagine something scary and you have a nervous system scared reaction. You know, you are self-fulfilling prophecy. Yeah, yeah. You are creating illusions. So that struck me when I was reading your book. That moment was like, oh, yeah, we all do that to some degree. There's a fight going on for the present moment in all of our minds. The ego army wants to pull you into the past and the future. When a sand dune is full of debris, when the landscape is But how do we go from... I'm going and doing yeah. interview after interview where I'm performing myself and I'm losing sight of myself to where you are today. Uh, basically kind of a breakdown. So the presidents were together for four years, 94 to 98. Sometime in 97, things got really jumbled up inside. I was coming home from tour to my new wife and children and being very distant. And fun daddy comes home and wakes up the kids in the night and wrecks the whole system mm. that home wife has set up. <laughs> oh, darn. I know. <laughs> That's not good. <laughs> no, it was bad. I had no energy for my family. And we were just getting asked to do more and more stuff. Our second record had come out. It didn't do as well. That reinforced my initial desire to just like freeze the band in a perfect form and break up right when we made our first record. And I was like, we're just teasing this thing out and wrecking it. Dave and Jason were way more into it than I was. Plus, we had all these employees. I was caught in this infrastructure that I'd helped create. You were trapped by your own success at this yeah. point. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, because now I don't want to sit here and be like a whiny, successful person. That's not what I'm trying to do. But I think the point of this whole thing is that anybody who is creative or trying to find their voice with creativity and maybe find success should understand that it's super important to check in and see how your nervous system feels at any given point in the process. And if it's a yes, follow. If it's a no, you really have to acknowledge the no. And I wasn't acknowledging the no. I was pleasing other people. But I didn't have the courage to say, I got to get out of here. I didn't say anything. So that really created this crisis. 
And I started to go a little crazy. And we went to Australia during that time, and we played in a shopping mall, and they let school out that day so everyone could come to the show. In Australia, we were the Beatles for a second. It was kind of amazing. We had to run for cars. Unfortunately, a girl kind of got crushed, and she was having an asthma attack. <gasps> oh, no. And we noticed this. And this is maybe on the heels of Pearl Jam's situation with the mudslide. We stopped the show and got her out and took her backstage and took care of her. But Dave and I were very freaked out by that. That event turned on a light in my maze and made me see an a way out, which was, it's just become dangerous, not just on that level, but for my sanity. I just couldn't keep saying yes when I meant no. It just was a lie. And I had this impulse to make music that was purely who I am. And I had no access to who I was if I was in this lie. Hmm. So that was really the bottom. And it manifested in me going to a band meeting in 97, and I said, well, first order of business, I quit. And I just, blah, you know, laid it on them. There was no lead up or anything. And it was pretty selfish, but it's all I could do. I had so much sadness dammed up in me while I was being this happy-go-lucky guy. And my marriage was not great because I wasn't there and wasn't paying attention. And so I just laid it out. And Dave actually was like, yeah, me, uh, okay, good. Yes. Let's, let's move <laughs> Thank on. Thank goodness you said it. <laughs> yeah. 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 I mean, we ended up hugging and bonding at that meeting and which was great because then I experienced the power of expressing your true feelings. People aren't going to destroy you if you say what you really think or say no when you mean no. So, um, yeah, it worked. We did our last show January 28th, 1998, and it was fantastic and all that love in the room. And I almost wanted to keep going, you know. <laughs> <laughs> but it was amplified by your knowledge that you weren't going to have to do it again next week. Exactly. So all that time I was in the president's, I had this other thing going on, which was this gut feeling saying, congratulations on your success, but that's not it. That's not what you're supposed to be doing. Keep looking. Hmm. And I started and stopped bands on the side. I made a little record called The Giraffes. I pretended that hand puppets and toys were a band and I wrote a fake bio for them. I made, a little, <laughs> I made a CD that I didn't put my name on at all. Something I made for a future person to find and be confused by, you know? <laughs> Dope. Was this beginning of Baby Pants? Kind of. Yeah. People wrongly thought it was kids' music. It was kind of angsty and psychedelic, and it was more like what I'm doing now, actually. Yeah. So I did that project. I started bands. The Presidents, we actually made a record. We played two- and three-string guitars, but we made a record full of the four-string and six-string songs that didn't work in our format. So we, we were still being creative together while we were broken up. We started a band with Sir Mix-a-Lot called Subset and wrote songs with him and toured the West Coast and all while we're broken up. <laughs> so it wasn't about- Can we just spend one minute on okay. this Subset tour? When we first hung out with Mix, the idea was that somebody was making a compilation album of unlikely pairings of Northwest artists covering other Northwest artists. Dope. Yeah. Love it. I'd love to hear that record. Yes. I don't think the record ever got made, but we didn't participate because we went out to dinner and halfway through dinner, we're looking at each other like, we should just make our own record. 
<laughs> you know, <laughs> and uh, we went and recorded some instrumental tracks, and he laid vocals on them, and they were amazing. They were so good. One of them was called Fame, actually, and it was about losing yourself in fame. Mm. And so I was like, thematically, this is like right on. And we ended up doing a series of sessions and making uh, enough music to do a record. But that was an interesting you know, experience because it was so fraught with expectations. Hmm. We heaped expectations on it. This is going to be huge. Like that happened with the presidents a little bit on our second record. But these days I do not sit around recording music and think this is going to be huge. I just think this is nice. <laughs> you know, yeah. like, I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm enjoying I'm this. nourishing myself right now and somebody will like it someday. And But yeah, so the pressure in that, collaboration was unreasonable and it just disintegrated eventually but mix uh, got me into recording on computers and changed my life in that way so the whole thing was great and worth doing and he's a fantastic super talented individual every so often i'd be with him alone in the studio working and i kind of look over and be like oh my god that's a mix <laughs> <laughs> what am i doing here <laughs> We actually had a song called, What the Hell Am I Doing Here? <laughs> so it was super fun. And then Chris Novoselic, of all people, asked us to be his backup band at some Naris awards ceremony. For a couple of years, they gave out awards for, I think it was for musicians who had done political work or, you know, stuff like that, which he had done some of. And so he's like, would you reunite as the presidents and back me up? And people had asked us for years. But all of a sudden, it was like, I think the answer is Yes. And hmm. Dave said yes, and Jason said yes, and all of a sudden, we were a band again. And that was remarkable, because I had worked on myself in the meantime. I understood more about how my preferences work. And when we got together to rehearse, it was like we were the greatest President's cover band ever. Awesome. <laughs> yeah, it was so good, because my happiness didn't depend on this anymore. It didn't before either, but I was under the illusion that it did because so many beaming yeah. faces were beaming back that I, th I should be happy. You right. know? So that was fantastic. Those years when we got back together were the best because we were on our own terms. I continued to work on myself. Eventually, that second phase, which went on for 13 years, I had a reoccurrence of, I don't want to do it anymore. I don't want to fly anymore. My marriage fell apart. I need to work on myself. But I gave them three years notice. It's like, heads up. Yeah. I know I struck, I, I put it on you last <laughs> yeah. time, so. Last time I gave him three milliseconds, and this time <laughs> yeah. I gave him three years. <laughs> There's a parallel there to what you were talking about with the press loop mm. of performing yourself in, it, in this really depressing way. Mm. But this is a performing the president's which in it does not sound depressing the way you just described it. Not at all. Can you dig into that distinction a little bit? Like in both of these versions, you are a little bit behind, but one of them is negative and one of them is not. Why is that? Yeah, that's interesting. I think time, you know, hmm. I had time to do other things, to work on myself and realize that I was mistaking success for happiness and that happiness wasn't something that was hard to achieve or I needed a big infrastructure to achieve. It kind of brought me back to realizing like, when I was writing songs on my four track, playing on the street, selling little mixtapes and busking, I was truly happy. I didn't want more. Mm. 
Somehow when we got back together, I felt like I was more of a busker and more like it was a small operation, you know, and we put out our own records and the gigs got smaller. I think the scale changing and time really worked to make me feel more like, ah, this is the environment where I can nurture my true self. But even when we got back together and we made albums during that second phase, that pressure to like have hits on the radio invaded the creative process. It made the song sound a certain way and I could feel it. I like to talk about this stuff because I think it's important for people to know that you have to spend energy and do work on uh, understanding your preferences, knowing yourself. I mean, it's an old, you know, it's an old thing, know thyself, right. But it's a huge thing. It's a huge way I raise my kids. Like, say no when you mean no. She comes, she goes, she strikes a pose. I fall, she stares, I fall downstairs. I'm frequently asked by various people to tell my story. Right. And it has been tremendously helpful and cathartic for me because it has forced me to articulate things that otherwise were just in the abstract feeling space inside of me. And as soon as I was able to articulate them, they felt less like they were overwhelming me. Yeah, Learning how to articulate my feelings and my experience has led me to a space where, wow, I didn't even realize this, but other people are needing to articulate experiences that are important to them, that are painful to them, and they don't have the words for them. Yeah, And then they hear me talk about my experience and they go, that's the wording that I was looking yeah. for. It's a huge payoff for me because it's like, oh, this isn't just me articulating myself into the void. It actually matters. But then on the flip side of it, there have been times where I have felt like I am, one, performing myself. Mm -hmm. So I'm a little bit like distanced. And two, is this serving me still? Mm -hmm. Yes, I know that it's serving other people people because they'll be like, I'm going to be a criminal defense attorney now because after I heard you talk or whatever, something like wow. that. Yeah. But then like a part of me is like, but is this me still? Mm -hmm. Am I allowed to be something else? That's why I think about with your story, it's got so many similarities to what I'm talking about. You're thrust into the public eye. You have a persona that you have to dance with. And you have misperceptions about who the real you is, but you didn't create it. That must make it even more disorienting and intense. Or maybe not. Maybe it's as intense in a different way. You have to find truth in it. Like you have to like the first step is, OK, here's this totally false infrastructure that I'm trapped in. How do I find the truth in it? Yeah. And then from there, I think the next step and the step that I'm arriving at is, OK, I found the truth in it. Mm -hmm. But how do I create something new yeah. that maybe takes from it, but lives outside of it? Well, I would say what happened with me is time and space. You know, time. Time where you do nothing. Hmm. I've found that the spots where I seem to be dead in the water are actually super nourishing. And my radar mind is open and on and receiving. One thing we didn't talk about, and which might actually be my lowest point, was that I could not, during the first tenure, sit down and simply play music for the joy of it. I was incapable oh, no. of it, and it scared me. 
I really just couldn't find joy in playing because I thought, is this a hit? Is this a hit? Is that a hit? It was like grabbing at ghosts all the time. And I'd lost the gear in my gearbox that was the pleasure in the now. And that terrified me. I've worked super hard to re-establish that. In fact, during the pandemic, I took my whole studio and dismantled it and put it away in boxes for nine months. And I just went to no goal, no songwriting, everyday play, and I really got that. I finally got that back. This music I'm making now, I could hear it in the distance Hmm. two and a half years ago, and I had friends over for dinner. At that time, I was in the silence, right? I was not doing anything goal-oriented, just playing every day. And out of that stillness, I told my friends, here it comes, something is coming. And then it went away. It was like this weird ghosty thing that just disappeared. But I could feel the vibe of the music. I could feel like this, mm, 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 mm. And, <laughs> <laughs> like, and then it all of a sudden started crashing in in the form of actual songs. But it was space. Mm. You know, the pandemic had a lot of beautiful gifts in it, and one of them is stopping. It's too hard to visualize when you have everything in front of you humming away, you know, like. Yeah. And that's what I think, yeah, also scared me about the band is I felt it is such a big bubble of sphere of influence. That's the other thing I always think about, sphere of influence. What do you want your sphere of influence to be? Does it feel better if it's just you and your body and the few people you know? Or does it feel better if it's the nation or the world? Like some people want the entire world in their sphere of influence, right? <laughs> I think some people think they want think that. Think they want that. <laughs> and I think that they're by and large wrong. Wow. Uh, He's yeah. telling everyone. Authoritatively. I mean, <laughs> I th you, did, you look That's at people brutal, who, have that, who have that job, right? Who've driven themselves to that position. And very rarely do I see the outward visible markers of a person who seems at peace with themselves. Yeah, yeah you're right. I mean, we have to be careful to treat everyone else, even people we don't know, especially people we don't know, the same way that we would want to be treated, right? Like the way Beck was misunderstood, the way I had to live with yeses when I meant no, what happened to you? I do this therapy called Hakomi therapy, and it's also called parts work. And you identify parts that are, they're really all trying to protect you, but they sometimes do it through destructive means. Like if they want you to take more control of yourself, well, they might manifest that with a food problem, you know, like bulimia or anorexia or alcohol abuse or drug abuse. It's still control, but it's the wrong kind of control. Right, right. And it's a control that is going to very soon spiral out of control. <laughs> yeah, yeah, totally. So what the therapy promotes is giving shape to this part of you that's asking for you to do something that's self-destructive. And you go in and you love it. You empathetically love it. You go, there's a song on my new album, I think, called Parasite by My Side. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Th yeah. That's what that's about. I have a very visual imagination, so I can really see these characters. And I started, when I did the therapy, I started mapping and making this huge map of all the characters and where they sit and what they look like. I gave up on that. I didn't really need it. It's more of a mental exercise. But you go in and you say like, you know, it's okay. I hear you. I see you. 
I know it's very important what you have to tell me, what you're trying to do. You're trying to help me. I so appreciate your help. And I'm not trying to get rid of you. I'm not trying to strip you of your powers or anything like that. Like, say I'm talking to a part that's about judgment. So I'd say, you know what would be wonderful? When you witness me becoming judgmental, can you let me know? Judgmental of me as opposed to other people. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Or any judgment. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. You ask the part to become more of a helper. And what I see when I do that is they just, oh, they exhale. They're like, thank you. Okay, sure. Yeah, we can do that. Now, the thing is, they'll fall back into their rut. And then you have to talk to them again. And it's not like you do it once and then you've diffused the bomb. You have to constantly be in dialogue with all these parts. When I'm talking about parts work, I always talk about that judgmental guy Mm -hmm. because he's so prevalent. He's so loud. They're like, dude, I understand. Please help me not be judgmental. (laughs) What I I find so fascinating about that framework you have is that you're attributing agency to those other selves of yours. Most of the time, it's natural for us to think that, oh, yeah, I'm the agent. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I have tendencies to be X, Y, Z. Sometimes I'm judgmental. Sometimes I'm indulgent. Sometimes I'm, you know, lazy, whatever it is, right? Those parts of yourself that you... Um, wish were different. And most people, and I'm among them, uh, routinely fail uh, to get that part of yourself to not be there, right? Um, right. And, because it's impossible. Yeah, it's it's intractable. And so you're just yeah. like, God, I keep trying and I keep trying. And like, for some reason, I my relationship with alcohol doesn't change, whatever sure. it is. But the way you're talking about it is like, well, you can't just shout at another person to be different. You have to be kind to them. And if you treat those parts of yourself as individual agents, which they kind of are, then how do you get that agent to like be your teammate? Mm-hmm. Well, it's not going to be by yelling at them for fucking your life up. <laughs> it's it's exactly. going to be through kindness. It's through empathy. Right? Empathy yeah. is huge. I have empathy for the bad guys. They are poor, sad, lost people, ultimately who are hacking away in the underbrush and they don't see the mountain. And I want to love them. When I'm doing meditation and when I'm visualizing, I send out blue, pink shards of love into Donald Trump. (laughs) Shards, though. (laughs) They are shards. Yeah, they're shards. I should probably soften those a little bit. So... Yeah, empathy is a huge one. And when I was making music for kids and families, the whole point of that project was to give them an aesthetic, empathetic experience that they could share the kids and the parents, that they could both love the same song. I worked so hard to get those songs to be recorded the right way, to lyrically engage a tiny kid and Mm. a grown-up. Uh, without being Disney, without like, wink, yeah. wink, this one's for the grownups, but more being like music for humans, you know, like mm. I used to resurrect old work songs and slave chants and gospel songs and old mm. folk and stuff that was in the public domain. And I would listen to it and take the rhythm or the vibe or the melody a little bit and twist it into something new. And my th- logic was that those songs or even nursery rhymes have survived because they are soothing to the human soul, right? Yeah. And so if I could scrape a little DNA off those songs and put them into my own and make something new, I'd also be making soul-saving music. Some of the Casper Baby Pants songs are funny and silly and everything. Some are kind of emotionally achy. I'm a sturdy barnacle Living near the shore 
Once I had a mom and dad, but don't see them no more. I remember Rachel Flotard, who sang on that song, periodically texts me and just curses me because she, every time she listens to it, she just weeps and she can't control her emotions. Poor baby barnacle. It's a baby barnacle who's like lost, you know, it's, it seems to have no parents, but it's surrounded by all these other barnacles. It's like a a little lost soul kind of uh, song. That is a notable thing. At least all the music you've made that I'm aware of seems very whimsical. Yeah. Is that a constant through line? Did you ever go dark? There's some stuff in the new th- new songs I'm doing that I don't actually know. I wouldn't say it's dark. It's more uh, meditative or introspective. But it's also whimsical. <laughs> yeah, it's also, it is whimsical. Because when you start meditating and getting introspective and start working with your ego army, it is a hilarious relationship. Oh, it's all absurd. The whole, yeah. this whole existence is absurd. Like, oh, how could it not be a right. little whimsical, even when you're deeply serious, yeah. right? Yeah. I remember being in seventh grade and taking sex education. We had it in fifth, seventh, ninth, and 11th grade. And I had a an aha moment, I guess, where I realized, wait a minute, if the egg in front of me, the month before me or the month after me had been fertilized, it wouldn't have been me. The fact that I got to be here at all is an absolute win. So that realization as a young kid, that made me feel like anything's possible. Like I can live a surreal life. And I guess I do that through songwriting. And I guess I do, I want to make it to some degree whimsical or light because it feels open. It feels inviting. I always talk about in lyric writing or music, a curled finger. Is the song like inviting me in or does it have generosity in it where it provides you with a hook that after one listen, you can walk down the street singing to yourself as a gift, right? Mm -hmm. And somehow I find doing that with humor and surreal, whimsical associations and metaphors is just the language that I love to write with. So much of Chris Ballou's musical world seems anchored in that parent-child dynamic, the surreality and whimsy of childhood, trying to inspire both the child in the adult and the adult in the child at the same time, a sensibility informed in those early days playing music for his mother. It made us wonder, what has his music been like for her? My mom died of dementia in 2012, so the last five years of her life were kind of a downward spiral, and she was not communicative for the last three. Going back to when I was a kid, she was just very encouraging. She noticed that I had skills on the piano, even as a tiny baby. She got me into lessons at four, and I took lessons until I was about 14. So she was really my cheerleader in that process. And then she turned me on to classical music. She had season tickets to the Seattle Symphony, and when her ticket partner couldn't go... I would go, and I loved it. We'd sit up there, and I would fall asleep. In fact, one of my goals with this new music I'm making is I want people to be able to fall asleep to it, even if it does have pop song craft. I want a kind of a drone undercurrent, and I think that's where that was born, is going to see the symphony and falling asleep. So she turned me on to that whole world of music. Then, yes, when the presidents happened, she was amazing. She was down there in the pit, She's like in her 70s in the pit, getting down and dirty with the crew. There's a famous story where we were playing the crocodile and she was parking her Mercedes near Needle Park where all the Mm -hmm. drug addicts hang out. And there were like people trying to help her who were kind of menacing. And my brother had parked 
not too far away and was walking along and saw her struggling in the park and got her situated and told all the guys like, we're okay. And he's walking her to the club in Belltown. And so he's a little like on guard because he'd already defended her maybe against some intruders. And down the street comes this classic punk rocker guy with like a big mohawk and piercings and chains and tattoos. And my brother's kind of stealing for a fight or something. And as they approach, the guy says, oh, hi, Mrs. Ballou. And she says, oh, hi, Kevin. <laughs> like she knew him because she went to so many shows. She knew all the people in Belltown. Yeah, she was incredible. I took her to the Grammys and she disappeared. And when she came back, she's like, that Stevie Wonder's such a nice boy. <laughs> I was like, where have you been? And then we got her photos back and it was her and Stevie Wonder and her whole crew just hanging out like, you know, partying. So, yeah, she was great. As much as Chris started making music just to see her smile, his spiritual journey has taken him to a place of not needing approval at all. Can I ask you about the opening track on this new album? What is the opening track? I it's forgot. Un- it's Just Untwist. Oh, Just Untwist, yeah. Yeah, I love it. It's a great song. Thank Eureka you. loves it. Yeah. And that line, my mommy and my daddy never told me you could just untwist. Right. Can you expound it's on It's so true. Uh, they yeah. never I mean, did. I, <laughs> it, feels, it feels absolutely true to me. The first time I heard that, I was like, that is a true statement. Right, right. And But I, it doesn't immediately parse in my mind yeah. into some less poetic framing of it. What's going on for you with that? It's basically an idea. I get a lot of ideas from Ram Dass. I absolutely love him. He talks about somebody training, about when you're a little child, like I was talking about with the glow of affirming faces telling you you're doing a great job. Well, that's you assembling yourself, right? And a lot of traditional relationships between kids and parents are performative. Like if the kid performs a certain way or does a certain thing, they are given accolades. If they go to some school or they become a doctor, there's this framework. And The mommy and the daddy never say, you know, you also have the option of just being crazy for a minute or meditating or going into deep neutral in your gearbox. There's a gear there you didn't know about. I do that with my kids. I am very clear, like, you can do nothing. My son is in his mid-20s now, and he's figuring out what he's doing. And I'm just like, "Uh, yeah, do anything, everything. Check in with yourself. Be loose. Be free. Untwist. You know, like... And through untwisting and through being free in the moment and receptive to your impulses, you will find your future. Your future is the tiniest doorway, and it is the right now. It is what are you, how are you feeling right now? Chris Bellew's latest albums are streaming on Apple, Google Music, and Spotify, and available for free on chrisbellew.org. And if you need some joint kid-adult enthralling tunes, look up Casper Baby Pants on YouTube. In the meantime, get lost with us. Find us on Twitter, at Amanda Knox. At Man Under Bridge. And as you're deep in conversation with your ego selves, perhaps ask the conscientious part of you to leave Labyrinths a five-star review. This episode was written, edited, and sound designed by us, along with Sophia Gates, with theme music by Josh Budo Karp. I also love how this occurred, not because you had invited 
record labels into your space. They just showed up one day and were like, we're going to change your life. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like, what a weird, interesting profession even that right. it requires that. I think it's probably similar with sports as well, where one day someone shows up at your homecoming football game and then you, kid, you're going to be a star. You're going to yeah. be a star. <laughs> <Like>. <laughs> right, right. Stick with me, kid. That's it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it is weird. And obviously their goal is to make money, right? But that's not discussed overtly. It's more like... They're not like, you're a sexy little resource. Get over here. I want to exploit you. Sexy little resource. I like that. That might be a song title right there. (laughs) Might have to get you on guest vocals on that one. In the Labyrinth's podcast system, the listener is serenaded by two separate but equally important hosts. Amanda Knox, who brings authenticity and empathy, and Christopher Robinson, who brings intellectual curiosity. These are their stories. What do you think, Knox? Looks like a podcast junkie shot up with one too many ads. Should have become a patron from the looks of it. Who wouldn't prefer ad-free episodes and signed books and live video hangouts over overdosing on ads in an alleyway? Don't patronize me, Knox. Leave that to the listener. Visit patreon.com slash Knox Robinson 